If you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7-10 through 10 is our passage today. The title of our message is Redeemed Through the Son. Redeemed through the Son, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. This is the Word of God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church family, that's a mouthful, and I want to read it one more time, okay? You follow along. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord for His church today. There are two ways to enjoy um, a first-hand view of the underwater world without having to go to the trouble of strapping on a bunch of scuba gear, air tanks and weight belts and all the rest. One way is to snorkel. I don't know if any of you have ever done that before. Snorkeling is where you, you stay at the surface, right at the surface with your face in the water, and you breathe through a big straw. And that straw is called a snorkel. And the whole time you're exploring, you're actually breathing. Another way to see what lies beneath the surface without all the scuba gear is simply to hold your breath. And, and that sounds not very fun, but it has actually developed into a, a hobby and almost a sport, if you will, and that's called free diving. And in free diving, somebody goes way down deep under the surface of the water without anything except a swimsuit, normally a pair of flippers, and a mask, so they can see and swim a little bit faster with those flippers. But they hold their breath the whole time. Now, both methods allow you to see incredible sights. The difference is that one thing, uh, one method allows you to see things close to the surface, and then another method allows you to see things that are well below the surface, that you would never get to see um, if you stayed there at the surface. The, the, the trade-off for seeing the deep things is that you have to hold your breath longer. And there are points along the way where you may struggle a little bit, and it may be kind of hard because you really need a breath of air, but you get to see things that, again, otherwise you would never get to see. Church, the wonder of God's Word is that it reveals incredible truths about God, both at the surface and deep down. Many of the truths of Scripture are simple enough for a child to understand. And we can strap on our snorkel, and we can... We can Go across the surface and, and we will see some absolutely incredible and amazing things. We'll walk away amazed at our God. And that's a good thing to do. But there are other times when God's Word calls us into a deep dive. It's more challenging. We might find ourselves gasping for air a little bit when we resurface. We may not even completely understand everything that we saw, but the wonder at what we see in the deep places is worth it. And so we keep coming back for more. Now, Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with what I'm going to call a deep dive into God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now, when you start the deep dive, there are surface level things that you see right there at the surface. 
There are things that are easy to understand, easier um, for us to comprehend. They are essential for us to understand. Saying their surface level in no way diminishes their, their, their importance and their beauty. They are incredibly amazing. But then uh, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes us deep into the mind of God as well. And deep into the plan of God where we sometimes may feel a little overwhelmed, uh, but more amazed and even more thankful Maybe scratching our heads a little bit, but scratching our heads to the glory and praise of God as we are in awe at who He is and His grand plan of salvation. Now, we've already experienced this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where we learn to praise God for choosing us for salvation. And I think we get to experience it once again in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, where we learn this church that we are to praise God for redeeming us for salvation. We are to praise God for redeeming us for salvation. Now we want to consider the context for just a moment, especially in a passage like this where really when I started reading in verse 7, we were jumping in right in the middle of one long sentence in the Greek. This verse 3 through 14, as we've said, is really one big grand thought, really one big deep dive into the mind of God when it comes to His salvation. Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus, and so that means he's writing to Christians. The things he says are true of us in this passage are true of of believers in Christ, saints, Christians. And in verse 3, I'll remind you that he calls them and us to praise God. Remember how this passage started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call to praise. And then three times in verses 3 through 14, we see this, pray, this phrase, to the praise of His glory, or to the praise of the glory of His grace. Three times. This is a passage that is calling us to praise God. But for what? What are we praising Him for? Well, it's summarized at the end of verse 3 by this. We are praising God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us, and so we are prompted to then bless Him. We bless God with praise by considering the blessing He has given to us, namely, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A way that we could perhaps summarize that into one word is salvation. The blessing of salvation. But then the question becomes how? How could people dead in sin come to be blessed by God with something so grand as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? How in the world could that happen? The summary answer that gets repeated all throughout this passage is the phrase, in Christ. It is in Christ that sinners come to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But Paul, thankfully, unpacks for us how it is that in Christ we are blessed with salvation. First, in verses 4-6, through six, he answers that question, how, by saying that the God the Father has chosen us for salvation. Verse 4, this is the first reason how sinners are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so the past couple of weeks, we have taken a deep dive into those verses. But then He gives another reason beginning in verse 7. In Him, we have redemption. 
In Him we have redemption. So how do we go from being sinners to saints? First, God chose us. Second, God redeems us. And this redemption now really focuses in on the work of God the Son. Said in in our overview of, of this passage, that this passage highlights the work of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see really all of them at work in a way throughout all of it. But this particular part of verses 3 through 14 focuses in primarily on the work of God the Son. We are redeemed through the Son, and therefore we ought to praise God for redeeming us for salvation. And so let's dive into this section on redemption. I want to share with you five truths along the way in our dive. Verses 7 through 10. The first four truths are going to come from verse 7 and 8. And then the fifth truth is going to come at the deepest part of our dive where Paul's going to push us to hold our breath just a little bit longer and see one final glorious truth that stems from Jesus's redemption for us. And church family, my prayer is that as we resurface from these verses, while our lungs may be emptied of air, they will have been filled with a shout, a song, a life of praise to our great Redeemer. So are you ready? You ready to jump in? Uh, ready to get a little wet, dive in to God's Word? All right, let's hold, hold your breath. Not really, but pretend. Hold your breath. Let's jump in to this passage. Let's start with the word redemption. We have to start there we got to define what redemption means in verse 7. Redemption means paying the price to free someone from slavery. Paying the price to free someone from slavery. If someone was a slave, usually it was because they owed some kind of debt and they would have to remain a slave until their debt was paid. However, someone, that someone being a redeemer, could pay the debt and set the slave free. And that slave would have been said to have been redeemed. The best illustration of redemption is found in the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. God's people, you know this story, had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, and God showed up in a powerful way through His servant Moses, and God delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt. I want you to notice how God's Word in Exodus describes that incredible event. Let's start before the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God said to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God said, I'm going to redeem you. Now let's fast forward to right after the Exodus um, took place. And the people of Israel have crossed the Red Sea. Um, they've watched God wipe out the armies of the, the army of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And they're standing there and Moses sings a song of praise to the Lord. And he prays, one line, I'm going to read the whole song, uh, but it's in Exodus 15. One line in that song says this, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And so God said, I will redeem you. Then all the Exodus events, not the book of Exodus, but the actual Exodus events take place. And then they praise God for redeeming them. So at its heart, redemption means to be set free. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. Paul says, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. 
Now, someone might think, redemption? Well, why is redemption necessary for me to be blessed with spiritual blessings? Are you saying that I am a slave or I once was a slave and I have some kind of need of being set free? Maybe it doesn't feel like I'm I'm a slave, that I need to be set free from something. Are you saying that I'm a slave? Yes, either you are a slave today or you once were a slave before being set free through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. Truth number one. The need for redemption is our enslavement to sin. So we're diving in surface level, right? We just got to start here at the surface. The need for redemption is our enslavement to sin. Church, the word redemption reveals our predicament apart from God's intervention. Especially as believers, we we sometimes maybe want to jump right to the good news of redemption, that, that we've been set free, but we have to start with the bad news, and that is that we need to be set free. That means that we have been enslaved to something. What is that thing? It is sin. We are sinners by nature, and sin is not merely something we commit, but it is the thing to which we are enslaved. In other words, we don't live before Christ intervenes in our lives. We don't live with control over sin, which would mean that we would have the freedom to overcome the temptation to sin if we wanted to. Instead, we live under the control of sin with no freedom to escape the chains of sin nor the consequences of sin, which is the wrath of Almighty God. And the testimony of Scripture is that everyone is born into this world enslaved to sin. We don't become enslaved later on in life after we've done some certain number of bad things. We are born enslaved to sin. King David said this in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all come into this world born as a slave to sin. You were born as a slave to sin. I was born as a slave to sin. And if we don't understand this truth, then we will see no need for redemption. If you have never been redeemed today, you first have to see that you need to be redeemed. And as Christians, people who have been redeemed, if we don't remind ourselves of this truth, then we will grow cold in our thanksgiving and in our celebration and in our praise to God for redeeming us. We must remember the change which bound us before Christ entered into our lives. The need for redemption is our enslavement to sin. But praise God, church, we don't just have a need for redemption, but in Christ we have the redemption that we need. In other words, the price has been paid to set us free. Now, what is that price? Truth number two. We're diving that down. We're going a little bit deeper. The price of redemption is the blood of Jesus. The price of redemption is the blood of Jesus. Paul says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. This is one of the simplest and yet most incredibly profound and important and glorious truths in all of Scripture. Church, it's so simple that a child can understand it and at the same time so marvelous that it will take all of eternity to provide the appropriate amount of praise to Jesus for providing us with it. Let's first think about the necessity of the blood and then about the one whose blood was necessary. First, the necessity of blood itself and then the one whose blood was necessary. 
to really understand this truth of the necessity of blood for redemption, we have to go back again to the Old Testament. In fact, we go right back to the same place that we just were in the book of Exodus. A very significant event took place during God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. Between the time when he said, I will redeem you, and they praised him for redeeming them. Something very significant took place. Now, you know kind of that story. The way God delivered Israel was by sending judgments against the Egyptians in the form of what we often call ten plagues. And the last of these plagues was that the firstborn male in every house was going to be killed. And this would not only bring great sorrow to to Egypt as punishment for their rejection of the one true God and their worship of false gods, but it would also really handicap them, and that's really not strong enough of a word, it was going to handicap the nation for years and years to come. It's God's judgment on Egypt. The uh, The interesting part, though, is that God's angel that was going to come is going to strike down the firstborn in every household was not just going to go to the part of Egypt where the Egyptians live, but that angel was going to pass through all of the land, including the part of the land where the Israelites lived. The reality was that the Israelites were just as guilty of sin before the holy God as the Egyptians. God was not delivering, God was not redeeming the Israelites because they deserved it, but because He had chosen them and made promises to them. They deserved to experience the plague of the death of the firstborn firstborn son just like the Egyptians deserved it. But God intervened with a plan of redemption. Now, what was that plan? It was this. If a family would kill a spotless male lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of the house, then God would view the lamb, the blood of that lamb, as a substitute for the firstborn son and would command his angel to pass over that house instead of entering it and bringing death to the firstborn son. In other words, God would see that in that house, a redemption price had been paid. Blood for blood, life for life, and the firstborn son in the house would be redeemed. Thus, the firstborn would be freed from the sentence of death. And this gracious act of God passing over sin through the blood of a substitute ended up becoming, in God's plan, the center point for the lives and worship of the people of Israel. Everything revolved, at least when they were following God in the way that He called them to, everything in the life of Israel revolved around the tabernacle to begin with, and later the more permanent structure, the temple. And everything in the temple revolved around the sacrifice of animals whose blood was continually shed on behalf of sinners. In other words, worship for God's people was a bloody experience because sin against a holy God is a crime of staggering proportion. We deserve death. And so the only way God can allow us to escape the death that we deserve is for another life to absorb God's wrath in our place. And God told Moses in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, some of those places in God's Word that are a little bit hard to read and hard to, hard to um, understand. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God very clearly says that the life is in the blood. We need a life for life, and God says that the life is in the blood. He says this, Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
And church, nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we read this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which means that worship is still a bloody experience. The only way that we come to worship the one true God is through blood. How is it that we become worshipers of God? Through blood. But here's where we begin to transition from the necessity of blood to the necessity of the one whose blood we need. Which blood do we need? Well, it's not just the blood of bulls and goats. All of those animals were just a shadow of the real sacrifice that was coming. That real sacrifice was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Blood is necessary for redemption, but not just any blood. The price of our redemption is none other than the blood of Jesus. We need someone who is perfect so that his blood can be accepted by God. And we need someone who is a human so that that human can actually be like us in taking our place, can be substituted his blood for ours. Jesus meets both requirements. He is fully God. And so He is without sin, though He was tempted in every way as we are, yet never sinned. And so His blood is perfect. It is a blood that can be accepted by a perfect and holy God. And Jesus, in His incarnation and coming to the earth, became actually fully human. God the Son took on human flesh so that He could be like us as a human and therefore be a substitute for us. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Him and the His of verse 7. In Him refers back to the last word in verse 6. Verse 6 ended with, in the beloved. That beloved one is none other than the Son of God. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The price of our redemption is not just any blood, but the blood of Jesus, the incarnate, beloved Son of God. Church, sin is serious. And so redemption is costly. But praise God, the blood of Jesus was poured out to purchase the redemption that we desperately need. And so the need for redemption is our enslavement to sin. The price of redemption is the blood of Jesus. Let's dive a little bit more, church family. Keep holding your breath. There's still more to come. Truth number three, the result of redemption is the freedom of forgiveness. The result of redemption is the freedom of forgiveness. What happens when God the Father covers over our sin with the blood of His Son? What comes as a result of that? Church, we are freed from sin and blessed with His forgiveness. Verse 4 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of our trespasses. Now, Paul in uh, Ephesians and in his other letters um, uses the word trespasses interchangeably with the word sin. You can even jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 1 and see him use those words interchangeably. To sin against God is to miss the mark of God's holiness. To trespass against God is to step outside of His bounds, His rules. That is to disobey Him. And it is these sins and these trespasses which condemn us before a holy God. Because of our sin, we should not be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but instead, we should get what we deserve, and that is the wrath of God. It is a just punishment for our sin. That is what we deserve. But through the redemption purchased by Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are forgiven. Forgiven. What does that word mean? Forgiveness literally means 
The loosing of a person from that which binds him. The loosing of a person from that which binds him. Think about that for a minute. Church, the blood of Jesus frees us from the sin which binds us, which means that God no longer holds our sin against us. Our sin has been dealt with. The, the debt of our sin has been paid in full. God will never come looking for repayment. God will never hold up our sin, those who are the redeemed. He will never come hold our sin up in front of us and say, hey, just as a reminder, look at what you did. Now, what are you going to do about it? Now, the truth is, we do that with people all the time. We say that we might forgive somebody, but then later we bring up that thing that they did that was wrong and we hold it against them. We hold it over their heads. That's not real forgiveness. When real forgiveness is loosing us from that which once bound that person. It was where, where, where we say, I'm no longer going to hold this against you. I won't bring it up. I'm not going to bring it up later in an argument or when you do something else, I'm going to go back and, and get that pass in and resurrect it. No, it has been dead. It's put in the grave forever. That's how God forgives us. He never comes looking for that sin and payment for it again. Instead, Scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. That's what forgiveness in, is. And here's what that means. It means we don't have to live in fear of God's wrath ever again. We don't have to live burdened by the weight of sin ever again. Uh, we had a dog when I was growing up. It's a hunt, hunting dog, uh, English setter. And that dog was high strung. I mean, it had so much energy. And, and that dog was made to run and hunt. And I think really in that dog's mind, it was made more to run than to hunt. And I think my dad would agree with that. It was a better runner than it was a hunter. But, but that dog stayed in a kennel. And, and we would go out there. I mean, that dog would be chasing her tail around, just ready for us to unlatch that kennel and, um, and get out. And I mean, the note that, that dog's nose is right there pressing against and as soon as we lifted that latch and maybe you've had a dog like this before and swung that gate open you better watch out because that dog was free and I mean she lived out that freedom to the best of her ability in those moments while she was out and she would take off tearing around the yard I mean it seemed like she was going 100 miles an hour you couldn't hardly keep your eyes on her if you if you stood like this and watched her you, you'd be dizzy in about a second I mean she was loving being free and she was doing what she was created to do. She was running and she was enjoying and a little bit of hunting along the way. Church, when we are freed from our sins, we are freed to live the lives that God has created us to live. That is lives for His glory. Not free to do whatever we want to do, but we're free to live lives of holiness. Remember, the reason God chose us was to make us holy and blameless before Him and to live out this identity of being adopted by our Father. We're not free to do that. We're not hindered by sin. We're not enslaved to that sin anymore. We're free, catch this, to live lives where we extend the same kind of forgiveness that God has shown to us to others in our lives. We're free to do that. We're free to live lives to the praise of His glory. Praise God for the forgiveness that comes through the redemption that comes through the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the need for our redemption is our enslavement to sin. The price of our redemption is the blood of Jesus. The result of redemption is the freedom of forgiveness. But what caused it? On what basis did God provide for our redemption? What motivated Him to sacrifice His one and only beloved Son? Truth number four, the cause of our redemption is the grace of God. 
The cause of our redemption is the grace of God. Verses 7 going into verse 8. In Him we have redemption through, the blood, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Here, here comes the reason why. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Church, just as we are chosen on the basis of God's grace, we are redeemed on the basis of God's grace. It's just another reminder, just like the nation of Israel, we in no way deserve redemption. We in no way deserve for God the Father to have sacrificed His only Son. We in no way deserve for Jesus to have gone up on that cross of His own choosing. Yes, other people nailed Him to the cross, but He could have stopped them if He wanted to. He did it because He wanted to. Why? Because of His grace. He poured out His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption is completely a work of God's grace. It's a free gift motivated by His good pleasure to show compassion to sinners. Notice the language used here. It's not just according to His grace, but it's according to the riches of His grace. Another way to say that would be according to the wealth of His grace. Paul uses this word riches several times in his letter to the Ephesians. I would encourage you this week, read through the book of Ephesians and circle every time he uses that word riches or that word wealth. And see how he uses that in each of those places. Here it means that He has paid the price for our redemption not out of a limited bank account that may or may not have enough in it to cover the debt of our sin, but He has paid for our sin according to the riches, the wealth of His grace. And according to chapter 2, verse 7, the riches of His grace is immeasurable. His grace is immeasurable. It will never run dry. In other words, God's grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin. The blood of Jesus was sufficient to pay in full the redemption price. And not only is the supply of His grace sufficient, but the measure which He pours out on us is more than sufficient as well. The text tells us that He lavished upon us His grace. The idea here is is that of like a waterfall. It just keeps coming in abundance. A superabundance is really a way that you perhaps could translate this. He's given us a superabundance of His grace. It just keeps coming. As the Apostle John said in John chapter 1, verse 16, and from His, he's talking about Jesus, and from His fullness we have received, John says, grace upon grace. It wasn't enough for John just to say we've received grace. He says we've received grace upon grace. And so if you are tempted to think that God's supply of grace may not be enough, you think about what you've done. You think about what your enslavement to sin has led you to do. And you say, I don't know if God's grace is enough to cover my sin. Friend, it is enough. God saves us. He gives us redemption according to His riches of His grace. And if you're tempted to think that even though God has lots of grace to give, that He might not have given you enough to cover all of your sin, then you need to remember how He has given us His grace. He has lavished it upon us. Church, let me put it to you this way. If you are at all worried that your sin is too great for the blood of Jesus to cover, then stop worrying today and fully rely upon the redemption purchased by Jesus, which flows as a waterfall of grace coming from a source that is endless. The redemption of, the cause of redemption is none other than the riches of God's grace which have been lavished upon us. So we've seen the need for redemption, the price of redemption, the result of redemption, the cause of redemption. Now, 
that might seem like a sufficient explanation of God's redemption. That might seem like Paul has taken us as deep as we need to go in this dive into the redemption of God. But Paul is not quite finished. It's as though on this dive into the redemption that comes from the riches of God's grace that Paul has caught a glimpse of another wonder, another treasure. And so he leads us just a little bit deeper to hold our breath a little bit longer, to dive a little bit further until we hit that level of awe that pushes us over the top in our wonder and amazement at God's plan of salvation as we too get a, a, a glimpse, it's a little taste of the glorious treasure which is our glorious future. Church, truth number five is this. The goal of redemption is the renewal of creation. And I'll, I'll be just perfectly honest with you. This truth doesn't do this point justice. I, I, I struggle with how to even put this into words. It, it's so, it, we, we, can't, we can't fathom how glorious this truth is. And so my best attempt is to say the goal of redemption is the renewal of creation. In verses 9 through 10, Paul pushes us to the brink of our understanding and comprehension of God's work. Just as he did, if you'll remember, the past two weeks, we have been pushed to the brink in our understanding of of God's plan of salvation in verses 4 through 6. He pushes us to the brink again as we try to comprehend what are the praiseworthy workings of our great God. Verses 9 and 10, making known to us. I mean, it's in the same breath. There's no period. There might be a comma in your Bible. This is just one long sentence here. Remember, we're right in the middle of a long sentence. So in in light of this redemption, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Wow. Church, there is a goal of redemption. And out of the riches of His grace, which God has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, we can know. We can know what God is up to in His redemptive work. Even the fact that we can know these things is an act of God's grace. God has made known to us the mystery of His will. Again, not because we deserve it, but look at verse 9. Because making known, to it, making known it to us lines up with His purpose. Or as we've said, another way to translate that is His good pleasure. It's merely coming out of Him wanting to Let us know what he is up to in his redemptive work. Paul uses the word mystery here. He uses it six times in this letter. It refers to something that God has kept hidden but is now made known. Now later, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to learn that the mystery that Paul really focuses on in Ephesians is that the Gentiles can believe in Jesus and be saved from their sin just like the Jews can believe in Jesus and be saved from their sin. In other words, God's design is that Jesus would come to save a multi-ethnic people for himself. But Paul doesn't speak of that in detail here. Instead, he looks even beyond Gentiles placing their faith in Jesus to the culmination of God's entire plan. He looks further ahead to that time when the redemptive work of God is once and for all fully in effect. His plan or administration of His will and purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan to take place in the fullness of time. That means when everything has happened that needs to happen in God's plan, then this is going to happen. What is it? What's going to happen? What is coming? What is the goal? What is is the culmination of this work of redemption through God the Son who shed His blood for our sin? Verse 10, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now that word translated unite 
It's a really long word in the Greek. And it's used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's a little hard. It's one of those words that's just hard to, to put into to, to, to words. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 13 where he lists some commandments and then Paul says that all of them, and he uses this word, and it gets translated, are summed up in this command. He gives some commands and he says all of these commands are summed up in this one command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is actually in a way a mathematical term. It means the, the, this word translated unite or might be translated a little bit differently in your, in your translation. It means to, to, get, to, to, to take a, a, a bunch of parts and to sum them all up into a total. But it, but it means more than that. It's also a rhetorical term in ancient Greek to refer to the end of a speech where the speaker would sum up all the points and tie them all together and bring home the main point. Where the speaker would say, now all of this, the point of all of this is, and he would say, and then the listeners would go, wow, now I see how all those parts, he was at work, that speaker was at work, bringing together and driving home this one main point. This word was used for that. You could translate it as gather together. It's possible, too, that this word comes from uh, the word that means head, which is used several times in this letter to refer to Christ being the head of the church. And that led one uh, scholar to translate it this way, to unite under one head all things in Christ. Of course, Christ being the head. The point is that, one, this is, this is such a glorious truth, it's hard to put in words. But the point Paul is making is that one day, God's work of redemption through Jesus will lead to all things in heaven and things on earth, that is all of creation, being brought together in Christ Jesus. And we say, well, why is that such a, such a glorious truth? Well, first we have to go all the way back to the very beginning to get the full picture. In Genesis chapter 3, what happened? God's good and perfect creation was shattered. Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the entire creation. And the perfect peace and harmony that existed in Genesis 1 and 2 was broken. And sin and the chaos and brokenness that comes with that sin covered God's good creation. And we experience that. We know what that's like because we live in that every day. We experience the darkness and chaos that comes through the shattering that took place with sin. Through our own sin. Through the sin of others. Through the frailty of our bodies which are wasting away. And through what we often call natural disasters. And Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that creation is groaning, longing for the day when it will be set free is the words he uses there. And he says God's people are also groaning, longing for the day when the full effects of, and he uses this word there, redemption are realized. In other words, all of creation, humans as well as the inanimate creation, is experiencing life in a world that has been shattered by sin. But the truth that Paul is saying here is that God is at work through the redemptive work of Christ, picking up all the pieces of His shattered creation. And one glorious day, He will put it all back together again. And from that day on, there will be this renewal, this reconciliation, this unification, whatever word we can use there, such that all things are made new and perfect peace and harmony will again rule the day forever and ever. Church, this is the longing of every human heart. We long for a world without the pain and the suffering and the heartache of sin, without the death and the suffering that plagues the world in which we live. And the good news of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 is that that day is coming. 
The treasure to which Paul has led us to dive deep enough to catch a glimpse of. The treasure which God in His abundant and infinite wisdom has made known to us is this. The redemption purchased by the blood of Jesus is the means by which God is making all things new. In other words, at the cross, through His Son, God was not only working to set us free from sin, but He was at work to Redeem His whole creation to pick up all the pieces and put it back together in one glorious whole. The redemptive work of Jesus at the center of it all. To paraphrase Paul in Colossians 1, the one by whom and through whom and in whom all things were created, that is Jesus, is the one through whom and to whom all things are reconciled, making peace, Paul says, by the blood of His cross. At the cross, God was fixing what had been shattered because of sin. I said to get the full picture, we have to understand, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, but church, to get the really full picture, we then have to jump from the very beginning all the way to the very end, all the way to the book of Revelation. You see, the book of Revelation closes in this way. It closes with Satan and his demons and all who belong to Satan as God's enemies being locked away forever in hell, which means sin and its destructive consequences are forever banished, never to plague God's renewed creation again. And then we get this picture of all things being united in Christ in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. The renewal, the putting back all the pieces of God's shattered creation into this one brand new glorious creation. And Paul is saying it's all because of the redemption purchased by Jesus. Church, because the one on the throne in Revelation chapter 21 who is saying, I am making all things new, is the one in Revelation chapter 5 who ascends the throne to break the seals of the scroll and to usher in God's final judgment and the new creation. Who is the one who has the authority to ascend the throne of God? It is none other than the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the one who was standing as a lamb though it had been slain and yet he had overcome the grave, the one of whom all heaven sang in Revelation chapter 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That means to usher in the new creation. Worthy are you. Why? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed you redeemed people for God church Jesus is the redeemer because Jesus died as a sacrifice he's able to redeem God's chosen people from their sin he is able to redeem creation from its bondage under the curse and he is able to unite all things in himself the goal of redemption is the renewal of all creation and it is a goal that will absolutely most assuredly be reached in God's timing at the fullness of time because it has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus did not spill one drop 
of his blood in vain. So the need for redemption is our enslavement to sin. The price of redemption is the blood of Jesus. The result of redemption is the freedom of forgiveness. The cause of redemption is the grace of God. And the ultimate goal of redemption is the renewal of all creation to the praise of the glory of God. We have done a deep dive today, church. But as we head back to the surface, let me ask you one final question. Are you redeemed? Are you redeemed? You see, through all create, though all creation will be united in Christ, that doesn't mean that every person will enjoy the blessing of redemption. As part of God forever uh, bringing peace is banishing all those who are opposed to His peace. That means Satan, his demons, and all who belong to Him because they are still enemies of God because they have not been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 7 began by saying, in Him we have redemption. That means that only those who are in Christ can be redeemed, forgiven, and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the way to be redeemed then is to be in Christ. What does that mean? It means to place your faith in Jesus for salvation. What does that mean? It means to fully rely upon Him to save you. That means to turn over control of your life to Him by trusting that He is the Redeemer and that His blood is sufficient to save you from your sin. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, will you do that today and be counted among the redeemed? And for those of us who have been redeemed, may we resurface from our deep dive into God's redemption with a renewed desire to live lives of praise to our glorious Redeemer, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for redeeming us for salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, as we try to catch our breath from such wonder and such glory. Father, in catching our breath, may we not lose our sense of wonder at such glory. God, but may it lead us to respond in praise to You. Father, with all of our being, may we praise You in this moment and may we leave more ready, more prepared to live lives of praise. Living in the freedom of forgiveness. Bringing You glory through all we say and do. Father, may we not rush past this moment. But Lord, may we enjoy reflecting and praising You for your glorious work of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.